morning everyone. How's everybody doing? So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on the Reformation and we'll study what happened during that time period. And next week, Henry will pick up where I leave off. So, a division that still haunts us today is the question, is the Reformation over? Is the Reformation over? And that's a question asked by a Notre Dame historian, Mark Nolan. In his 2008 award-winning book with this very same title, it was, Is the Reformation Over? And this is a question a lot of people are asking. In an increasingly secular and hostile world where Protestants and Catholics share an ever-growing set of beliefs, not only theological views about the Trinity, right? We share our views with the Incarnation, uh, the Resurrection, and also kind of basic views on gender, marriage, and the family. And so, is it really necessary Right for us to remain divided, that is, Protestants and Catholics. Now, after all, as Noel reasons in his books, Catholics tend to worry as much about the advancement of godless secularism in the world as evangelicals do about the advancements of theological modernism. So why should we continue to be divided about the past? You know, can we just let bygones be bygones? Isn't unity in the church what Jesus prayed for in John 17? John 17, verse 21 reads, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, based on Jesus' words, isn't the disunity between the Catholics and the Protestants just an impediment to the world evangelism? But in any case, it's been over 500 years now. Haven't we had enough? Back to the same question. Is the Reformation over? So what I hope to show you in this class as we begin to examine the Protestant Reformation is that the main problem is not divisions in the church. That's not the main problem. The problem is dividing the church over the wrong issues. So, to explain this, let me just read one article from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church Statement of Faith, Article 1, the scriptures, and I'll pass out another one. So, I'll be reading from this little handout right here. The one where you see I had 20% left on my phone, because I printed it out. All right. And it reads, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is perfect, rather, is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. That it, that it has God as its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. That it reveals the principles by which God will judge us, and therefore is, and shall remain to the end of the world. The true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Now, this claim that Holy Scriptures are the true center of Christian union has been called the formal principle of the Reformation. The problem at the time of the Reformation, a problem that remains to this day, was the act of the Church of Rome to require people to believe that which was not taught in Scripture. 
They require Christ's sheep to believe what Scripture actually rejects. The act of the Bishop of Rome to claim supremacy over bishops and even over the Scriptures is undoubtedly the greatest cause of division in the history of Christ's church. And as we'll kind of see in this class today, it eventually forced a breaking point. But before we look at uh, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, arguably the two most colorful figures of the Protestant Reformation, I kind of want to touch on a few things that will set the stage for today's lesson. And I'll mention two words, it's counsel, counselorism, rather, and humanism. So, counselorism, which means the church puts the final authority, the church has the final authority, instead of the Pope. So it's a, a group of uh, appointed people that the church appoints, and not elders, just people that are, you know, church secretary and people who the church vote to have um, opinions within the church. In my opinion, they, they function as what we would have our elders function in, in, that, in that capacity, but not the Pope. And a long-standing debate in the medieval church had to do with the question of the relative authority of the Pope in relation to church councils. So that is the Pope outside of the church having authority over them and telling them what to do. In that time, the authority of the Bishop of Rome gradually grew throughout the medieval church. This meant that the office of the Pope became hotly contested because of its source of political influence, you know, kind of like a, the presidential election today. So at one point, between 1378 and 1417, a period known as the Western Schism, there were three people simultaneously claiming to be the Pope and to have authority to, ex to excommunicate each other. So finally, the kings of Europe, they had enough. The emperor, Sigismund, Sigismund, <laughs> summoned the Council of Constance, which took place in 1414 through the year 1418. And his goal was to, was to dispose the existing popes and appoint a new one. And this was a huge vote of no confidence for the credibility of the papal office, which was at an all-time low. And it, set, and it set in motion a series of limitations on the Pope's authority. For example, Constance demanded that councils be held at regular intervals and in per, in perpetuity because Popes could not be counted on upon to handle their own business and the affairs of the Church. The future councils set limits on the number of cardinal Popes, on the number of cardinals that Popes could appoint. And also the number of relatives the popes could appoint that were related to them at the time. So a council in Basel, rather Basel, in 1432 and 1434 declared that general councils were the supreme authority of the church. And in 1439, they insisted that denying the authority of the councils over the pope was a heresy. So they held to councilism. They believed that the councils in the church held authority over the Pope and they could um, excommunicate the Pope, if you will, at that time. In the years that followed, Popes began to conveniently right, forget to call the councils that Constance had demanded. Meanwhile, the papal theologians 
they, they argued about the, the Pope's supremacy over the council, such as the, the forced donation to Constantine. Meanwhile, the movement known as the movement I was speaking of earlier, the councilorism, it was gaining momentum. It was becoming more popular during that time. So now we'll move on from councilorism to humanism. While the, uh, while the political and religious rulers were grappling with debates over the, the relative authority of the Pope, another movement was gaining momentum, humanism. The rally, the, rather the rallying cry of the humanist was ad fontis, which means back to the sources. Humanists believed that the world was, was immoral and cultural, was rather immoral and cultural decay and that the solution laid in recovering the wisdom of classical and antiquity. The wisdom of the Greeks and the legal and political expertise of the Romans. And at the forefront of the humanist movement was the scholar of unparalleled greatness, uh, Erasmus. Erasmus was, a, <laughs> Erasmus was a Catholic priest and scholar who lamented the, the abuses of the authority and widespread immorality within the Roman Catholic Church. And he criticized the Roman Catholic Church in his, in his um, critical essay titled In Praise of Folly, that was published in the year 1511. But his greatest con contribution to the Protestant Reformation was his translation and publication of the Greek and New Testament. You know, before Erasmus studied uh, before Erasmus, students of scripture relied on a Latin translation of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, completed by Jerome in 382 AD. And while this was a remarkable feat, the Latin Vulgate, as it became known a little, little later on, uh, by another word, but uh, a lot of people were critical of it because it had errors in it. And one of the known errors was in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And instead of and instead of uh, uh, wording it repent, Jerome translated it, translated to do penance. And drawing on the scholarship of Lorenzo Bala from the generation earlier, Erasmus drew on a variety of Greek manuscripts to create the world's first critical edition of the New Testament and Greek with facing, rather with a facing Latin translation. And when it appeared, there were 1,200 copies that were distributed. And that was in the, the early 1516. They kind of struck the world like lightning. Right. And finally, theologians and scholars could more readily examine the language of the New Testament for themselves with more accuracy. So two young priests who acquired early copies of Erasmus' Greek New Testament and they began devouring its contents were Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. Martin Luther was born in the year 1483 and he lived until 1546. The terror, the terror of God's righteousness is what hit Luther like lightning. Well, if you know boxing, it hit Luther like a Mike Tyson hook. 
Uh, Luther was born and educated and raised in a world dominated by these forces, counselorism and the papal authority, humanism and a desire to recapture the ancient world, rather than ancient wisdom. Now, he was born in Germany on November 10th, 1483, into his parents Hans was his dad and Margaret Luther. Martin Luther was the son of a wealthy miner, but a very common man of the people was Luther's father. When Luther's father hoped that uh, he would leave the royal and uh, the royal and manual labor and become the first, rather become a lawyer. But as a student of the University of Erfurt, at the age of 21, Luther found himself caught in a lightning storm and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And to his father's horror, he followed through with that oath. And on July 17, 1505, he entered into the Augustinian Order of Erfurt. Luther became, in his word, in his words rather, a monk's monk, devoting himself nearly constantly to the most rigorous forms of prayer, fasting, and work. If a monk ever got in heaven by his monkery, it was I, he said. If I kept going on any longer, I would have killed myself with, with prayers and readings and other rigorous types of work. Now, Luther tried to find peace with God, but could find no assurance through the Roman penitential system of confessions and penance and good works. Luther said, I torture myself with prayer, fasting, and, free, and, 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 and freezing cold weathers. The cold alone could have killed me and caused me pain such as I will never afflict on myself again, even if I could, Luther said. And Luther also once said, if I could believe that God was angry at me, rather if I could, rather if I could believe that God was not angry at me, I would stand on my head for joy. Now the, the spiritual terror at God's transcendent holiness and his own sinfulness an experience Luther referred to as the religious dread came to a head on May 1507. When Luther was to, was to say his first mass at priest, both believed Luther believed that as he said, the words of the consecration at mass, uh, the bread and the wine became actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And as he stood shaking at the altar, he later recounted that upon addressing, upon addressing God in public prayer, public prayer, he said, I was utterly stupefied and terror-struck. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince, right? But who am I that I should lift up mine eyes and raise, or rather, or raise my hands to divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living and eternal and the true God. So wisely, Luther's mentor and friend, Johann von Stupitz, he suggested that Luther earn his doc doctorate and to begin teaching theology. Then while shocked at the idea that a spiritual mess like himself could possibly instruct others, Luther later on submitted to this, and in October, 5th, in October, the year 1512, he received this doctorate of theology from the, uh, the newly established University of Wittenberg. 
and he immediately began to teach theology. And this is where everything began to change. As a professor, Luther only, only lectured on books of the Bible. And this is what it meant to him to teach theology in the university at, in his time. And from the year 1513 to 1514, he lectured in the Psalms. And he studied passages like uh, Psalm 22, verse 3, and read, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The same experience that Luther knew so well. And this experience also has been experienced by Christ on the cross. But Christ, unlike Luther, was righteous. So why would the Son suffer the way sinners suffer? Right? That's the question. Then, on, in, uh, from April 15 to um, September 15, 16, God led Luther to teach the epistles to the Romans. Now, do you kind of recall what happened during these pivotal years of 1516 through 1517? Erasmus' Greek New Testament had been published, pouring through the epistle to the Romans with the help of Erasmus' New Testament. Luther, he finally understood the gospel. He said, It'll be a little long quote. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way of that but one expression the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, I, and I had no confidence that I would merit that, rather, that my merit would satisfy Him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a whole new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and, and greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. I quote. And after finishing teaching the Romans, Luther's convictions were strengthened as he turned to lecture through Galatians. And all of this came to a, another head famously in 1517 over the sale of indulgences. The Roman church distinguished between the mortal sins like murder and adultery which, uh, if unconfessed and unrepentant, left the sinner eternally damned, and venial sins, which were like lesser strict sins, like uh, lustful thoughts and things like that. And according to the, uh, the catechism of the Catholic Church, those venial sins must be purified either on earth or after death in a state called purgatory. <laughs> now, purgatory is a place where the sinner is purged, not as, not as the eternal punishment of sin, but as a cleaning from the presence of sin and its temporal effects. This is where indulgences come in. 
Through indulgences, the Catechism teaches the faithful can obtain remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls of purgatory. Now, during the years surrounding Martin Luther's conversion, the sale of indulgences was widespread as a way of raising funds to pay for the construction of St. Peter's in Rome. But these indulgences promised more than relief from temporal punishments in purgatory. As um, one of the popes at that time, Pope Leo, stated that these indulgences offered a offered a perf it offered perfect remission from sins, and they would restore sinners to the state of innocence before the state of innocence which they enjoyed in baptism. And to Luther, this was too much. So on October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, Luther, who was at the time thirty three years old, this is when he posted his famous ninety five thesis written in Latin. And for debate against the practices and sale of indulgences. Now, posting these theses for debate well, was a standard, standard at that time academic practice. Now, Luther wasn't saying that he believed every thesis he wrote, but he was raising important questions. For example, thesis 27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as, soon as the, the money clinks into the money chest, the souls fly out of purgatory. In Thesis 45, read, uh, Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy, needy, a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy capital indulgences, but buys God's wrath instead. And after being translated to German without Luther's knowledge by a nearby printer, these theses became, they spread like wildfire. Before he knew it, Luther was at the center of a theological and political firestorm. In the years that followed, Luther was given opportunities to defend and clarify his views and a series of disputations. First at Heidelberg in 1518, and then at um, Leipzig in uh, the year 1519, and before finally in April of 1521, being summoned to appear before the imperial court at Worms which we know is today the Diet of Worms. Now, by leaving the safety of the Saxony of the imperial courts at Worms, Luther realized that he was putting his life in jeopardy. True, he was promised safe passage, but so had John Huss, who a hundred years earlier was, was, uh, was condemned to death by the Council of Constance. Luther entered the city of Worms in April 16th and was summoned before the Diet the following day. Entering the bishop's court at 4 p.m. On, on a Sunday, April 17, 1521, when Luther was brought before the emperor, the electors, and a portion of the, of the estates, the emperor purported to have declared, that fellow will never make a heretic out of me, is what he said. So Johann Eck, he only asked Luther two questions. The first question was, do you, Martin Luther, recognize books published under your name as your own? And the second question was, are you prepared to recant what you have written in these books? And while with rather with, with bated breath, Luther responded, those books are mine, and guess what? I've written more. There are more where they came from. And asked by Eck whether he should defend them all, or do you care to 
reject the part, Luther responded by asking for more time. He said, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, he who denies me before men, him I will deny before my father. And to say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me more time to think it over. And the rest of April 17th, and the long night followed, Luther spent time alone in reflection and prayer. And the following day of April 18, 1521, Luther appeared again before the Diet at 6 p.m. When the questions of the previous day were reiterated, are these your books and will you recant them? The Luther responded by classifying his books into three sorts. He says, this skillful move, rather, this skillful move allowed for Luther to, to make a speech rather than just give a simple yes or no. And responding to Luther, Act continued to press him to give a, give a clear yes or a clear no in regards to his books. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, or do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And it was the final press that provoked the response that Luther gave and that has echoed throughout centuries. He said, since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes or the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Although eventually condemned by the imperial court and declared a fugitive, he was provided protection by his prince Frederick and spent the next few years in hiding, writing and translating the Old and New Testament into German. And I hope it's clear to you that the heart, rather, that at the heart of Luther's conflict with Rome was the authority of Scripture. Luther was not content to depend on the Pope's authority for what is true. He understood Scripture to be authoritative over Pope's councils, churches, and every and any other human authority. So now, interestingly enough, the very man who got Luther started on the path of the Reformation Erasmus ended up being called upon to respond to, to what some of the people thought was an uh, overemphasis uh, on the freeness of God's grace and salvation. And in his book in 1524, the, the, uh, the freedom of the will, Erasmus argued against Luther that conversion and salvation were a shared work of the human free will and divine grace. But again, we have, to, we have to thank Erasmus here because this provoked Luther to write the greatest and most forceful, forceful uh, treatise in his life. And that was called The Bondage of the Will, which he wrote in 1525. Okay, so from that, that brings us to our second form we'll look at. And that is Ulrich Zwingli. But before that, let me uh, pause for a minute and ask you, are there any questions we would have in the Well, we'll have to say the question for Okay. So Ulrich Zwingli, he was born in 1484 and he lived until 1531. 
Zwingli was a contemporary of Martin Luther and the reformer of the city of Zurich in Switzerland. If Martin Luther, right, if he was a spiritual father of Protestantism, then Zwingli is arguably the spiritual father of the reform movement within the Protestantism. And though today, not as well known as Luther, and most likely not as well liked as Luther either, Zwingli's impact was actually enormous. Zwingli was born on New Year's Day in 1484, just six weeks after Luther was born, in the village of Wildhaus in the territory of St. Gall, in what today is referred to as Switzerland. And at that time, the Swiss lands were divided into politically independent cantons, raised and surrounded by the unspeakable beauty of the Swiss. And, and rather, in Switzerland, Zwingli was very much long, he rather very much long for a return to the golden age that humanism seemed to promise. Educated in the humanist tradition at the University of Vienna, and then in Basel, he became a devotee of Erasmus, who he spoke about earlier, whom he regarded as a mentor and a friend. And in 1506, at the age of 22, Zwingli was ordained as a priest and began ministry in Glarus. In the cool of the country, in the cool of the country mountains, Zwingli devoted himself to the study of antiquity and, of course, the scriptures. Uh, he later wrote that around 1515 or 1516, this, rather at the same time Luther was teaching through the Psalms and the Romans in Wheatenburg, he wrote, I undertook to devote myself entirely to the scriptures. Led by the word and by the spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside philosophy and theology and to learn the doctrines of God from his own word. He also said, before anyone among us had heard the name of Luther, I had begun in 1516 to preach the gospel of Christ when I entered into the pulpit. I did not preach the words of the gospels. Rather, I did not preach the words of the gospel lesson appointed for the mass that morning, but rather the biblical text alone. Zwingli's growing reliance on the scriptures as his authority shaped every aspect of his life, but most of all, his preaching. This especially became apparent in 1519 at the age of 35. He was called to be the people's priest of the great minister church in Zurich. In less than 12 uh, hurried years between the commencement of his preaching, preaching ministry in Zurich on January 1st of 1519 and his death on October 11, 1531. Zwingli saw the, the Swiss city of Zurich transformed into a Protestant city. In the time that follows, I kind of want to share four themes that characterize Zwingli's ministry. His preaching, patience, his gospel, the, the gospel preach, and partnerships he made in that. Zwingli famously began his preaching ministry in Gross Munster, the church in Zurich, by commencing a series of consecutive expositions through the Gospel of Matthew. In this, he argued that he was not innovating, but returning to the ancient method of Lectio Continua, which means continuing reading, by the continuous reading. And it was advocated by his mentor, his mentor, Erasmus, and also practiced by John Chrysostom. 
and plenty of others. And each week, he picked up in the text where he left off from the previous week, beginning in Matthew, preaching through the rest of the New Testament before returning to the Old Testament. And in contrast to the other churches that based their sermons on topics on church, rather on the church calendar and festivals, Zwingli emphasized simplicity over skill, Sundays over holidays, and King Jesus over the saints. And as his biographer, Bruce Gordon, explains, he wrote in this biography of um, Zwingli, the Reformation's reduction in the number of religious holidays was accompanied by an increased emphasis on Sundays in order that the whole community might gather to hear the word preach. And quote. Each Sunday, Zwingli arrived in the pulpit carrying his own Bible. That's all he, that's all he carried, his Bible was up there. And for about an hour or so, he preached without any notes, and rather as he explained, his goal in preaching was always to call my flock absolutely away, as far as I can, from the hope in any created being to the one true God, and Jesus, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And while he was not afraid to denounce injustice and make passionate appeals for social change, the heartbeat of Zwingli's preaching was his joy in Christ. In Gordon's assessment, he wrote, No contemporary performer spoke more frequently and fervently about the joy of a Christian. And as Zwingli explained, Zwingli explained, All our work who preach the gospel consists only in preaching how we find the assurance of our salvation in the death of the living Son of God. So Zwingli's second uh, thing was patience. Performing work, Zwingli, like Luther, understood that Reformation, the Reformation rather, was God's work. So he preached God's word and waited patiently for it. And as a, a shepherd, Zwingli understood his responsibility for the flock as a whole, drawing images familiar to the rural sheep herding Swiss villages. And his contemporary on the true and false religions, Zwingli explained, First uh, Peter chapter five verses one to three. By writing, he says, "Behold the grandeur of the Christian shepherd. He feeds the flock with pains, with painstaking watch, watchfulness, and does not constrain except as far as the word itself constrains." Two of the main areas of controversy during Zwingli's early years in Zurich, open were the abolition, rather, was the abolition of the mass and the removal of the images and icons in the church. And while Zwingli opposed the mass and preached accordingly, he believed that it could only be abolished gradually. So he kind of didn't go and attack everything up. He just preached and just prayed the Lord would do the rest. And just eventually started getting rid of stuff. And as Zwingli and if, rather as Zwingli advised the city council, the mass should be abolished and replaced by evangelical service. But our respect for the weaker brethren this change should be made slowly. Zwingli was a realist and he had a pastor's heart, in my opinion. Such inconsistence on patience, rather such in insistence on patience, however, earned Zwingli enemies from unexpected places. For many, Zwingli's patience looked like compromise. In fact, Zwingli's fiercest local detractors were not of the Catholic sympathizers, but rather residents of Zurich who opposed 
evangelical reforms. Rather, it wasn't them. It was actually the people who were actual preachers like himself. They were the Anabaptists and um, also the pacifists. They insisted on a complete and immediate reformation of the church without any delay. Patience like Zwingli pushed. But eventually, however, Zwingli's gradualist approach to reform won the day. And on June 8th, in 1524, in Zurich, that city, the council agreed to remove images from the church, and in their words, so that many may turn themselves from the idols entirely to the living and true God. Then look at thing three, gospel partnerships. From his earliest days as a humanist, Zwingli was part of a circle of friends who all became Protestant reformers in the key cities around the Swift Kansas. Zwingli's closest friends and the people he confided in was a fellow preacher by the name of Leo Judd. Always at his side, Judd also, he wrote letters for Zwingli. He read and he summarized books for him and preached at his church in his absence. And he also defended Zwingli's reputation after his death. Beyond Zurich, Zwingli's friendships extended through a network of reformers throughout Switzerland, France, and Germany. But unfortunately, not everybody he uh, locked arms with and partnered with, he was not able to partner with Martin Luther. And one of the paradoxes of Zwingli's life is that he kept his friends so close, he kept, probably kept his friends close, and his enemies even closer. He was a man of remarkable affection, but if you found yourself on his bad side, there was probably little hope of reconciliation. The conflict with Martin Luther included many things, languages, um, cultural and ge ge geographical differences, but centered on their different, differing understandings of the Lord's Supper. This is where they really flash head. Now, both rejected transubstantiation and the special power of the priest to perform this so-called miracle. And both, both also rejected the idea that the Eucharist was a sacrifice, which, which, uh, which had the power to secure God's grace for those whom it was offered. But when they did not take part, and both rejected the, the medieval Catholic um, practice of adoring, rather the medieval practice of adoring the sacramental, sacramental bread after the priest had pronounced the words, this is my body. Moreover, both demanded that the cup be given to the entire church. However, Luther had held that the body and blood of the Savior were mysteriously, but actually present in, in, with, and under the bread and wine, as they were eaten and drunk by the ones who took part in communion. Whether they had faith in Christ or not was the issue. This has been called consubstantiation. Luther believed that the body, Luther believed that the words, this is my body, require that Christ's body must objectively be present in the brain. Zwingli, whose view is sometimes called the memorial view of the Lord's Supper, maintained that the words, the word rather, is, and this is my body, meant represents. Now this represents my body. 
And as for eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood, this was Wingley simply meant believing in Christ. He summed it up in the Latin phase. To eat is to believe. In the Holy Communion, therefore, believers ate alone ate Christ, that is, exercised faith. Any unbelievers who took part received only bread and wine. Christ was present in the Lord's Supper. Zwingli argued not as a man, but as God. Not in his humanity, but in his omnipresent deity. And I agree with Zwingli, and we, we do here as well. In October 15, October 1529, a German prince, Philip, he hoped to bring Luther and Zwingli to come in agreement at a meeting known as, uh, in, a, in a meeting as they both went together. Many others attended, and they reached agreement on 14 out of 15 doctrinal points. They could not disagree on the Lord's Supper. They parted several ways. There would be no united Protestantism. Tragically, on October 11th, in the Battle of Capital, Zwingli, he died, leading a poorly equipped army to Zurich to defend itself against the surprise attack from the neighboring Swiss states. He was only 47 years old. Despite his tragic death, Zwingli's ministry in Zurich is a model of what Reformation can look like. Through preaching, patience, partnerships, and gospel transformation can take over a church and a city. And even after Zwingli's death in 1531, Zurich remained a refuge for reformers and exiles across Europe. A center of theological training and a model of truly reformed church, rather a truly reformed church, and a city throughout the world. So conclusion, a woodcut in the Zurich Bible, which was published in 1531, contains a picture uh, that perfectly captures what we've seen in this class. It depicts a godly meal where Christ is represented as the middle, pouring his word between the milestones. Erasmus can be seen as Christ's humble aid, putting the flower into the word, into sacks, representing the Greek New Testament. These, in turn, are handed to Luther, who bakes the bread into Bibles, which another assistant, Zwingli, and other preachers distribute to the people through preaching. This is how the Reformation happened. This is how the Reformation still happens today, because it's not over. So, to return to our question, today's class, is the Reformation over? I will submit to you, no, the Reformation is not over. Because the work of the Reformation is never over. As long as God is not silent, but continues to speak by his word, as long as churches remain unreformed and unhealthy, and as long as the risen Lord Jesus tarries, not wishing that any should perish, but reach repentance, the answer to what is, is not. The Reformation is not over. It cannot be over until Christ returns to save his church and rescue his people. And until that day, it is our task to recommit ourselves to the same principles for which the reformers lived and died. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, taught by God's word alone, to the glory of God alone.